Luke chapter 21, verse 25. One of the Hollywood blockbuster texts in the New Testament. We join Jesus and his disciples standing in the temple in Jerusalem and admiring the grandeur of the temple, admiring the jewels and the gold and the, 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 the beauty of the temple. And then Jesus says, that beauty, that glory might not last. And he starts telling his disciples these stories. And we, we join halfway through that conversation in verse 25. And Jesus says to his disciples, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you unexpectedly, like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. A few Fridays ago, I had a couple of spare hours in the afternoon. So I stopped by the Starbucks on the corner of King and University across from Laurier's campus. I had some emails and other busy work to take care of, but, but mostly I was there to do some eavesdropping. It was redemptive eavesdropping. I'm trying to have my finger on the pulse, right? And for what it's worth, nothing you say in Starbucks is safe from prying ears. There was a young couple sitting next to me talking really animatedly about, about the looming party that evening. And talk of that particular party turned to a discussion of parties in general. And then the importance of, of letting, of, the importance of your youth being the time where you let your hair down. The guy next to me, he couldn't have been much more than, than 21 years old. But he said that he was going to give himself until he was 30 before he settled down. Nine years or thereabouts. He said he just needed to, to get it out of his system. And I thought, like, how much of it is backed up in there? <laughs> if you need nine years to get it all out. He didn't seem to think that there might be some countervailing life events that, that might put a damper on this nine-year party, running out of money, for instance, or 
an illness for himself or, or for family members. The collapse of cheap oil markets, that sort of thing. For this guy, the future was bright, at least for the next nine years. I don't tell this story because I want this sermon to be all about the, the youth of today and their problems. In fact, I'm quite fond of the youth of today. I tell the story because I think we might actually, or a lot of us, might have something in common with this guy. I mean, we might be more responsible, a bit more mature. But like him, a lot of us just probably think that things are going to carry on just as they are. Business as usual. Busyness as usual. We have a sense that there's time to, to get it together when the day comes. And maybe that's a function of being a, a privileged, comfortable people. Most of us have warm beds to slip into at night. Most of us have central heating in our homes. We have a change of socks on a wet winter day. The money's not bad. The fridge is stocked. And global catastrophe is not really outside our front door. I read about a pastor in Dallas this week, in Texas, who hosts a Bible study with homeless men who live in the neighborhood uh, where his church is. He says these guys love coming by for Bible study. They love reading and reflecting on whatever, whatever passage is in front of them. In fact, they note the Bible pretty well. But he says they especially love these kind of texts, like the one we read this morning, these apocalyptic these texts with, with, with big things happening in the heavens. He says that they have well-developed theories on how the world is going to end. It might be easy to, to dismiss that enthusiasm for these kind of texts as being, I don't know, the delusion of someone who's maybe not mentally completely balanced. But I wonder if, I wonder if there's something else at play here. For these homeless guys who, who gather for a Bible study every week in Dallas, there's the very real possibility that the world for them could end at any time. And so I wonder, in those Bible studies, reading this kind of gospel, is that where Advent stops being all candle-lit and snuggly? where Advent starts to meddle with our lives, where the season starts to shock us awake, to put us in solidarity with all the people who feel that the end of the world is right on their doorstep. If it's true that marginalized people, poor people, homeless people, have a penchant for understanding and appreciating these apocalyptic texts, I wonder if the opposite is true. How do comfortable people approach these texts? What kind of texts do comfortable people like in the Bible? Do we like the apocalyptic ones? I wonder if comfortable people really like the stories of baby Jesus more. A womb-like manger, dappled in soft orange firelight, low-frequency murmuring of cows, a baby cooing, Kings arriving with great presence. 
That's really nice. Not jarring, gentle, comforting. That's okay, I guess. But then Luke comes along this morning on the first Sunday of Advent and blows some cold air into that really comfortable, cozy scene. Some cinder and some smoke into our cozy Advent expectations. He gives us this grinchy gospel, which sounds a lot like the end of the world. There's always a risk in reading these kind of passages because it's easy to slip down the wrong path when we want to understand what they're actually trying to tell us. Uh, There's a a temptation to hold these passages in one hand uh, in a newspaper or or the New York Times app on your phone in the other hand and and do some line-by-line comparison. If you've ever spent any time in the the 2 a.m. no-man's land of cable TV and flipped over to one of those Bible channels, you've probably encountered people who do this for a living. People who watch current events with breathless anticipation. They watch troop movements in the Middle East and they interpret them as as a portent of the end of days. Passages from Daniel and Joel and Ezekiel and Revelation are used to back all that kind of stuff up. And of course, those passages get used over and over and over again. As Pastor Betsy noted last week, people write books and they say, here's the time and day when this is all going to go down, and when it doesn't go down, the book's on Amazon for a penny. But I think Jesus' words resist that kind of treatment. They resist that kind of one-to-one comparison with the headlines of the day. I mean, for one, they're really ambiguous. Imagine a CNN anchor saying something like, there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. And everyone's saying, okay, could you elaborate? Nations will be in anguish. Tonight at 6. Got it. But that's not very specific. People fainting of terror. The roaring and tossing of the sea. These all seem to resist precise identification with a particular example of something from current events. Some commentators say that Jesus' words are almost like a, like a satire of apocalyptic literature. And, and that might be a stretch, but... But the ambiguity of the signs that Jesus is talking about here resists that one-to-one comparison. That would be a reckless way to understand what Jesus is trying to say. Because I think Jesus spoke ambiguously on purpose. Not because he's a bad forecaster. Not because he's a bad predictor of what's going to happen but instead because he's telling us this is the course of human history. This is the way things are. From that first generation of apostles, from those first disciples gathered in the temple there, all the way to these apostles and disciples gathered here this morning, we're all going to experience the convulsions of history, the turmoil What Jesus is telling us on the first Sunday of Advent is expect the world to prove itself to be a dark, dangerous place. In all times and in all places. So be vigilant. Be watchful. Watch your step. Don't get swept up in it. 
The kingdom of God is near. So how do we keep watch? How do we stay vigilant? Some Christians see the world's darkness and they condemn the world. It's heading to hell in a handbasket, so they withdraw. They wring their hands, they make their predictions, they tally up the current events like some apocalyptic accountant. And then when the really bad stuff starts to go down, they think they'll have the good fortune to watch it from some heavenly box seat. Being raptured away is kind of like having front row tickets to the biggest, most violent blockbuster in history. And I guess that's one way of, of being watchful. But there's something off-putting about that. It seems self-righteous, for one. It externalizes the darkness of the world. Those are things that happen out there. Those are not things that happen in here. Those things happen in the Middle East. They don't happen on my street. They don't happen in my heart. And I'm grateful because I think our, our, I think our reformed tradition has insulated us from a lot of that kind of stuff. We don't hit the end times panic button really quickly. We don't put a lot of stock into the doomsday types on cable television. But I don't know if that's cause for pride. Because I'm not sure we're any better at being watchful. Because not only are we Reformed Christians, we're also, most of us, really comfortable Christians. Living in a pain-avoiding culture. Living in a death-denying culture. Comfortable Christians who live in a culture of self-justification, of excuses and ignorance. And I wonder if that might be even more dangerous than thinking that the nightly news is fulfilling some biblical prophecy. We like the things of Caesar, the money, the control, the power, the well-being that goes along with it. We excuse violence in its name. We excuse poverty in its name. We excuse injustice in its name. And we excuse ourselves. Sometimes we're not wary of the darkness. Sometimes we're not watchful in the darkness. Sometimes we befriend it, especially if it improves our well-being. I remember a few years ago, there was a fire in Bangladesh uh, in a garment factory. Uh, they made clothes for Walmart and a bunch of other North American companies. The fire claimed 112 lives. And I remember watching a pundit on CNN, one of these people, I don't know where they come from, but they're, they're always there shouting in the evening. And this pundit said, we can't put this on Walmart. Those people needed jobs, right? This is the sort of tragedy that happens sometime. It's the cost of doing business. So let's not criticize Walmart. Let's not criticize profit motive. Let's not criticize companies looking for cheaper labor. Don't put it on ourselves, even though we like cheap consumer goods. It was enough to make me squirm. Like, what was this guy's deal? How could he just sit there and minimize this horrendous event? Surely now is not the time for excuses, right? And I thought, those are good questions. Maybe questions I can ask myself. Maybe questions we can ask ourselves. 
Because we're all pretty good at making those excuses. We're all pretty good at that self-justification. And what that means is we're not being as alert, as watchful, and as vigilant as Jesus calls us to be. And I think of that every time I see migrant families getting hit with tear gas or churches covering up abuse scandals or people living in peace because of a nuclear umbrella that covers their country or even just the small scraps of enmity I hang on to in my heart that keeps me at a safe distance from that neighbor I don't like. The darkness is out there, but it's also in here. And how can I be watchful if I'm not reckoning with that? How can I be vigilant if I'm not acknowledging that? I think Jesus knows that his words to us this morning are a struggle. Or they call for a struggle. To be watchful, to be vigilant is not easy work. What is easy work is looking off into the heavens and thinking, ah, the prophecy is coming true. Decoding prophecy is relatively easy work. But reckoning with the darkness of the world, the darkness in here, that's a struggle. Jesus calls us this morning to be a particular kind of person, an Advent person. And to be an Advent person means you have a particular posture towards the world, a moral stance toward the world. It's about reckoning with that darkness while recognizing that the kingdom of God is near nonetheless. And if the kingdom of God is near, that means we can live with those kingdom values. We can repent. We can take responsibility we don't have to condemn the world for its darkness, but we can see it as a place that is being redeemed even as we sit here. But that can get exhausting. And that's why Jesus warns us, be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. That kind of hits close to home in Advent, doesn't it? Eugene Peterson's translation in the message hits even closer to home, I think. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Can you think of a sharper contrast between the gospel and the way our culture celebrates Advent? Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Those are the most essential things, aren't they? But Jesus warns us that can be risky. It can dull your expectation. It can weigh you down with worldly stuff and, and distract you from being watchful for the, for the kingdom, which is already here. So may we be a watchful people this Advent. May we be watchful and recognize the darkness of the world especially the part that we play in creating it. May we seek justice, stop making excuses, and live urgently, because the hour is getting late.
I'm tempted to leave it there, but it's never a good idea to end a sermon with a laundry list of things to do, even if they're good and essential things. And it's a risk doing that because if we start to reckon with the darkness of the world, we're going to start to recognize how powerful that darkness is. And our most, our most enthusiastic and, and ardent attempts to be holy are going to be little match for that darkness, for the violence in our communities and the violence in our culture. I think even reckoning with the darkness sometimes might make the world seem like a darker place, like wading into a lake at midnight. You realize how dark and cold the world can be. And if we start fighting for good, we're going to recognize that all of our excuses and complacency are being built on lies. So our watchfulness, our vigilance, I don't know what it amounts to if we do it on our own. I don't know what it amounts to if we don't do it with expectation that the world is about to turn. I don't know what it amounts to if we don't think and don't remember that the kingdom is near and the world will be transformed. When I start Advent, I often think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know the name, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and a Lutheran theologian, lived in Germany in the, 19, well, in the early part of the 20th century. If anyone was ever watchful and vigilant, it's Bonhoeffer. He spent the advent of 1943 as a prisoner of the Nazis. And from his jail cell, he wrote letters to his friend Eberhard. In one of those letters, he wrote, a prison cell is kind of a good analogy for Advent. One waits, one hopes, you do this or you do that, but ultimately, those are negligible things because the door is locked and it can only be opened from the outside. And here's the good news. From the Gospel of Luke and from every blockbuster apocalyptic text in the Bible, our Lord is coming to unlock the door. So let's not grow tired or distracted. Let's keep watch for our Savior who is coming with that key. For our Savior who was cut out for this kind of world. For our Savior who faced the darkness head on. For our Savior who trampled down death by death. I hope that we all have a chance to hang Christmas lights this year. <laughs> to drink some eggnog or whatever kind of nog you're into. To hear Andy Williams sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. To attend a Christmas party and wear a bad Christmas sweater if you want. But when we do so, let's let Luke's gospel reframe all of that. May our parties and our revels and our lights not be a distraction from the darkness of the world, but a reminder that light has shone in the darkness, that darkness has not overcome it. 
May it remind us that the kingdom is near, and that is a cause for feasting and celebration. That light is so badly needed in this world to redeem its past, its present, and its future. So may this time, which is so often so sentimental, be filled instead with a sturdy, earnest hope. The world is about to turn. My sisters and brothers, let's begin Advent by expecting the end of the world. And may we expect it with joy. Because with the end of the world comes our Lord. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. In his name, every tear will be wiped away. In him, there is no darkness at all. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Our God, we begin a season of coziness and warmth as comfortable Christians, so often blind to the darkness of the world, so often blind to the darkness in our hearts. And so we thank you for the gift of your gospel as challenging as it may be to hear, as inconvenient as it might be. May it continue to make us watchful. May it continue to make us vigilant. May it continue to remind us that though the world is so dark, that your kingdom is near, that the darkness is so encompassing, but that you have shone in it and you have not been overcome. May we expect the fullness of your second coming. Amen.